Thanks, Alison. Why don't we pray? Lord, as we come to hear your word this week, we pray that by your spirit you won't let our hearts just gloss over what you have to say to us. That for each of us here, uh, often when we hear of money being spoken, we can just switch off and close down. We pray that today, through your word, we might see the world the way you see it. That your spirit would enable us to see the tremendous joy that is generosity and that we might be living for what matters most. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, if there's ever been a week where, for me, I've been tempted to worry about life, it's been the last couple of weeks. Um, My wife, Sarah, a few months ago was diagnosed with a pituitary tumour, which is kind of right about in the middle of your head, just below your brain. Uh, And they operated uh, two weeks ago to remove uh, that tumour, which was successful. They go through the nose, um, so she still looks just as great as she did before, um, which is excellent. And it's just quite a helpful way to get to it. The the neurosurgeon said it's almost as if we've been designed that way. I'm like, oh, maybe we have. (laughs) Uh, uh, But then um, she she came home like Friday week ago. uh, But then this week, she just was just extraordinarily tired and kind of getting worse and worse to the point where she was just yeah, extraordinarily gone. And I'm like, well, what is going on here? She kind of wasn't making much sense. And so we went into the emergency on, um, on Thursday morning uh, and they admitted Sarah because her salt levels had dropped to a, a, a level that was too low. And basically the way the body works is when, you're, when your salt levels get really low or, or really high, it causes all sorts of problems. It can kind of, the difference between just a small amount of salt in your body can be cardiac arrest or aneurysm or um, everything's fine. It's amazing the way our bodies work on such a, a fine kind of balance of, of how we are. Now, thankfully, Sarah now seems to be on a good trajectory. It dropped quite low. They were really worried about to move her into critical care, but then they kind of picked up a bit more, uh, which has been great. And so she's feeling much better. Uh, she's just got to be waiting now for the gland that they operated on to kind of get the system working properly to produce the right amount of salt, basically, uh, through a number of different reactions that are happening there. But as I stood in neurosurgery's high dependency unit with Sarah in this bed, with people all around me, with all sorts of problems, it struck me how precarious life is. How we just live on the thin edge of a nice balance. And it made me think, why, why are we here? Is this what life is about? Does it come down to this moment in this ward when decisions are being made, when you don't know what will happen to the person next to you or what, what will happen to you? If you ask a Buddhist why we're here, they'll tell you the reason that we're here, the reason we exist is to reach nirvana, to reach enlightenment, to come to that place in life where nothing can have an effect on me, that I'm just truly free from anything and I go off into an eternity of nothingness. And that's what the Buddhist says we're here for. Uh, The Muslim um, sees this life really as a test, a chance to prove themselves to Allah that they are worthy of the next life, an opportunity to try and be good enough for God. To most people in our community, almost irrespective of your upbringing or your religious background, it's as if the purpose in life is to get as much as we can. The world around us is saying we want to seek as much happiness, as much experience, as much money, as much comfort, as much leisure, as much health, as as many years of our life as we can possibly squeeze in. That's what life is about. What matters matter to you? What are the things that you live for? What makes life worth living? What are the things that you'll fight for to the end, to cling to, to hold on to? Is it your reputation? Is it your health? Is it your security? Is it your finances? 
The things that we fight for seem to be the things that we value, the things that we, in a sense, worship. Well, as Jesus, in this section of Luke's narrative of the life of Jesus, as he walks towards the thing that mattered most for him, the whole reason he came to die in our place and to rise again as king of the universe, as he comes in that trajectory, seeing what matters most, the things of God, the things of the kingdom, he comes across a man who's fighting for something else, a man who wants what he can get his teeth into. Luke 12, verse 13. Have a look with me. Someone from the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Kind of sounds like the younger brother speaking, doesn't it? You know? Tell him to give some to me as well. I want my share. I want what's fair. You can kind of hear it in his voice. He wants his share of the inheritance. If there's one thing families fight over, it's money. In a recent study, over 57% of divorced couples cite money as the primary reason for their divorce. This man, most probably in the wake of his father's death, just wants Jesus to sort out his brother so he can get away with the cash. Would we really be that crude? Would we really respond that way? Surely we wouldn't be like that. We wouldn't be thinking in these ways, would we? But Jesus here refuses to get into this discussion. Now, he's not saying that you know, there's, there's no role for judges and arbitration. There is. There are good roles for those. But it's just not what Jesus has come for. He's come for a different reason, to get to the heart of the problem. And that's exactly what he does. He brings us to a bigger issue. He shows that there is a bigger issue going on than justice. Now, to me, that's, that's like a huge alarm bell. I hate injustice. I don't know if you're anything like that, but when I see injustices going on, it just makes me angry, especially when they're done to me, but also to others. Right? I just go, I, I want to see things put right. I hate it when people are wronged. I've got this sense, I don't know what it is within me, that I just want to seek what is right and fair. Sometimes that's good, because it's right to seek justice for others, for the oppressed, for the, those that can't help themselves. But other times, my desire for justice masks all sorts of wrong and selfish desires within me. I don't know if you're similar. I want justice, or do I just want more? When my vacuum cleaner breaks, I'm within my rights, and I want more. And what is, what is behind that? Is it justice, or is it something more sinister? Here, Jesus goes to this man's heart. Look at verse 15. He told them, Watch out. Be on guard against all greed. Because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Life is not about our possessions. It's not about our possessions. Contrary to every advertisement, everything we see, life is not about the abundance of our possessions. Now, why did Jesus need to say that? Was there a first century ad kind of campaign going on the billboards of Nazareth and Galilee and and Jerusalem where people were saying, come, you know, you can have a better life. Was that what was going on? Was there lots of that sort of thing that he was needing to speak against? I don't think so. See, I don't, in some ways, there's part of me that goes, I kind of get that life is not about our possessions. As I stood in the hospital room and I looked around, I don't think anyone in that room was worried about their possessions. They're worried about life, about bigger things. But here's why 
Jesus needs to show what this bigger issue is. It's because greed is so deceptive. Greed is so deceptive. It sucks us in. It distorts our view of the world around us. That's why Jesus says, watch out. Be on your guard. You think, what would he say, watch out and be on your guard too? There are a whole heap of things that come into our mind. Greed is not one of them for me. Notice, he doesn't say, watch out and be on your guard against sexual immorality. He doesn't say that. You don't hear him saying that throughout the scriptures. Why not? Is is it because adultery isn't as destructive as greed? No. The answer is because adultery isn't as deceptive as greed. We almost always know when we're committing adultery, when sexual immorality is going on, we kind of know what's happening. Jesus' warning here has to mean that we almost never know when we've gotten into the equally soul-destroying sin of greed. There's something kind of hidden about it, covert about it. Through my kind of, what, 10 years in, in pastoral ministry, I've had lots of people come and chat to me about their struggles with sexual temptation and impurity and adultery, but not one person has ever come and said, look, I'm really struggling with greed. Not one. We're so good at picking greed in others and justifying it in ourselves, aren't we? We can see it from a mile off in someone else, but when it comes to the mirror, it's just not there. Spiritually speaking, sex has slain thousands, but money has slain tens and tens and tens of thousands. Jesus says, watch out. Be on your guard. Then he tells this parable. This story, to prove a point about what's going on. Uh, Come with me from verse 16. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do? Since I don't have anywhere to store my crops, I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink and enjoy yourself. What we see here is this story of a man whose fortunes turn good. You notice, he didn't do anything to make his produce go well. In fact, the produce went well because God gave it to him. In this situation, we start to see that his success had nothing to do with him. The success that came to this man in this story came from the God who gave him a bumper crop that year, so much so that he could store it up. And there's part of me that, as I read this, I think that's just good management, isn't it? You have a bumper crop, you go, well, hey, I can work through this. I can make sure that it, um, it, it keeps there and it keeps as a safe thing for the future. It kind of sounds like just good money management. But it misses a couple of things. Number one, ownership on earth is something that really never comes to us. See, God owns everything. God owns owns everything. The produce of the land comes from Him. Our lives are sustained by Him. Even my life and yours and this man's are His. We belong to Him. That's the claim of the God of the Bible. You might have all sorts of other things or religions or people that you follow or ideas that you you walk along with, but the Bible says that we exist for God. Everything we have is made by Him and it's to be used for Him. The idea of ownership throughout the Scriptures is not really a big idea. 
Now, the Bible doesn't have this strong concept of ownership. What you see is that we don't really own anything. This is really important to get. We don't own a thing. Look at Psalm 24. The Lord owns the earth and all it contains, the world and all who live in it. But it's mine. No, it's not. Before anything is mine, it's God's. And we must remember that. He owns it. Everything comes from Him as a gift and is to be used the way He wants it to be used, administered faithfully on His behalf. What's the problem with this man in this passage, in this parable that Jesus tells? Well, the heart of the problem, the heart of the problem of this man was self-worship. His eyes are too close together. That's his problem. His eyes are too close together. What do I mean? Well, did you see about it? It's all about him. I'll do this. I'll build bigger barns. I'll tear down these barns and I will build bigger ones. And then I'll say to myself that I will be sitting back and enjoying life. It's all about him. He's come under the illusion that life is about his comfort and security and goodness rather than God's. And that's what greed does to us. It shifts our focus to us. It grows in us some entitlement mentality that we must have it. I deserve it. I'm owed it. But the only one who is owed anything is God. This man had begun to think that the sum of one's life was in the abundance of his possessions. But not long after that moment, that changed very, very quickly. You fool. That very night, his life was taken from him. The precariousness of life hadn't come into his mind. He thought he was on top of it all. He thought that he had it all sorted. But it wasn't. Kind of, let me bring this into today's kind of world for a second. Imagine that you're kind of the type of person that works hard at your job and you've got a good windfall and you're there and things are going well at your work and you come home a bit late. The kids have just seen the kids just in time for the kids to go to bed and you say goodnight to them and then your spouse comes and says, look, it's, 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 I'm going to go to bed now. Do you want to come and join me? You're sitting at the table just looking over the plans, thinking about the business, working out what we do next. You're like, yep, yep, I'll be there in a second. I won't be far away. And you think over them and you think over them and you think through what you need to do next and you ponder and you, and you consider and you get a little tired and your head just starts to nod for a second. And then you hear a knock at the door. It's late. What is this? You walk to the door and you open it. And there is God saying, your life, please. And starts counting from 10. Nine. You're like, whoa, whoa, hang on a second. No, 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 no. no um, I've got stuff to do. I've got plans to make. What do you mean? Now's not time for my life. Eight. Seven. But hang on. I've got a family. There, there, there are things that I wanted to do. Six. Five. Four gone. I tell you, I stood next to Sarah's bed yesterday and there were two beds missing. And I was like, oh, did that lady move from the ward? And Sarah said, no, she had an aneurysm last night and she died. Life is so precarious. Jesus puts this in front of us to recognize that life is not about living for us, that there is more in an age to come. He tells us that we are to be rich toward God. Life is about the worship 
of the God who loves us and made us. So what does it mean to be rich toward God? What does that mean? What is that phrase talking about? Well, it's very simple. Jesus is saying, if you store up your treasures on earth, it's because you're not rich towards God. If you worry about money, if you're resentful towards others who have money, if you're running after money, if you're just simply not able to give money away in radical proportions, it's because we lack an inner wealth of knowing that we have been treasured by Jesus. See, being rich towards God needs, means we need to recognize God's riches towards us. got four points in this section if you're following the outline. What does it mean to be rich toward God? Number one, it's to recognize God's riches toward us. That God was willing to give up everything for you and me. That Jesus came and became flesh and dwelt amongst us and allowed His creation that He was sustaining at that very moment to nail Him to a cross and to face the penalty that we deserve so we might not have to face death and hell forever. If you knew that, Jesus said, if you, knew, if you see what I have done, if you see that inner subjective spiritual wealth that we have, if you knew how much you were treasured, then money would be just that for us. Money. Just another thing. It wouldn't be our security. It wouldn't be our focus. It wouldn't be the thing that we run after or that we worship. Let me put it a different way. Every single one of us in this room, including me, has something that we treasure. Something at the center of our heart that is kind of the thing that we seek after, the thing we find in Gollum's words, our precious, right? The thing that we live for, things that provide security and hope. We all have those things, but every treasure except Jesus will demand that you die to purchase it. Every treasure except Jesus will demand that you die to purchase it. It'll, it'll drive you. It will say, you've got to run after me. You need to seek me. You need to come. You need to give everything for me and you need to come and you'll die for it. But here's the catch. Every treasure except Jesus will, die that, sorry, will demand that you die to purchase it. But Jesus is the only treasure that has died to purchase you. Jesus is the only treasure that has died to purchase you. See, the only way we're going to get over this sickness of greed, this focus on kind of money and, and what we desire out of life and finding our security in these things, is not just to make up a rule that says, give your money away. That's not going to work. It's not going to be saying, right, I've just got to work out how much I'm going to give. It's to focus on what Jesus has done, on who He is. He has given us everything, that we are the most treasured possession in Him. We have nothing to fear because He has given us eternity. It's to be captured and captivated by Him and realize that we have it all. We will inherit the universe. It's only when you see Jesus treasuring us at infinite cost to Himself that we'll start treasuring Him and His kingdom. What does it mean to be rich toward God? Number one, it means we need to recognize God's richness towards us. That's where we need to start. Number two, it's to recognize God's care for us. Look at verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you eat or about the body, what you wear. 
For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They don't have a storeroom or a barn. Yet God feeds them. And aren't you worth much more than the birds? Can any of you add a cubit to his height by worrying? If then you're not able to do even a little thing, then why worry about the rest? I've tried it. Try now. Worry about your height. See if you can grow it. Right? It doesn't work. We can't, we can't do that. Jesus tells us to focus on his goodness and recognize his care for us. The goodness of God eclipses the worries of this world. Goodness of God eclipses the worries of this world. You look at what he has given us. I can say I've felt that over these last three weeks. That no matter what happened, I've felt that God is good. He has given us life. If even the, the most worst unimaginable thing happened and my faith was still in Jesus and so was Sarah's and so was our kids, then what we have is gain. What can this world take from us? Jesus pushes us here to trust not in our own money-making abilities, not in our abilities to provide and, and give what we kind of need, to not trust in our own security, but in the security that God provides. We have no reason to worry. Now, this isn't a promise that everything will always turn out rosy, that it will turn out what we would imagine to be the best thing. It's not a promise to say everything will suddenly turn to gold if you, if you come to Jesus and trust Him. It is a promise, though, that God will work out for your good and His glory whatever needs to happen. Do you trust that Jesus died in your place? Do you trust that He's God's King who's come to live for you? Then won't you trust Him that what He has in plan, although it might be hard, will be for your good and for His glory? What a joy it is to serve our God in whatever way that, that be. What a joy that is to model that to the world around us, that we do not live for this, these things for the here and now, but we have a God who has given us eternity. So Jesus commands not to worry. Now, I want to say there is such a thing as anxiety, clinical anxiety. Uh, you know, a sickness, a brokenness that people have where the world is so clouded that they can't see the world as it really is. They can't see what God has done for us. And there might be a place for someone to go and see a doctor and to take medication to help clear away that fogginess that exists with anxiety that just comes over you for no apparent reason. You can't work out what is going on, but you certainly can't see clearly. Jesus isn't here saying, oh, you know, if you just trusted God more, you wouldn't have anxiety. He might be. But there is a reality of the brokenness of this world that we live in, that, that, that sickness exists. What do we do? We get help. We talk to a doctor. We talk to others. We ask others to pray with us, to pray for us, to sit alongside us and remind us that although the world seems like it's crashing down around us and you don't know why, we have a hope in heaven, a God who has come and lived and died in our place. We need to keep coming back to the care of our God. But the context here is especially focused on money and possessions. Now, if you're new here and you're like, whoa, is this church always kind of just preach about money? We talk about money as much as Jesus does 
In fact, I think I need to repent a little. I think we talk about money less than Jesus does. Uh, apparently, as, as you look at all the times Jesus is speaking about money, it's um, more than about 15% of the things that he says are about money. Why is that? Because there's this deep connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money. It seems it's kind of like the litmus test of, of what we worship, of who we serve. For some of us, we might try and divorce our faith and our finances and say, no, they're two separate things, but God sees them as inseparable. They're part of our whole life that we are to serve Him with. And so as we open up this part of the Bible, we see what Jesus has to say and we need to hear Him on His terms and hear the warning that He has for us. I think we often worry because we haven't been radical enough to ever need to trust God for our provisions. I think we worry about our finances because for some of us, we haven't ever needed to trust God. We've never been so radical that we're like, whoa, I don't know how we're going to get through the next year. Or um, We actually kind of just provide for ourselves and so we never get to see God's goodness and His faithfulness carry us through. Martin Luther said this great quote. One of the reformers in the 15th, 16th century said, I've held many things in my hands and I've lost them all. But whatever I've placed in God's hands, that I still possess. I've held many things in my hands and I've lost them all. But whatever I've placed in God's hands, that I still possess. Being rich towards God is to trust Him with His goodness, to trust Him with His care. And thirdly, being rich towards God means recognizing a different economy. Recognizing a different economy. Storing up earthly treasures, things here that are kind of that we love, things that we enjoy in this life, storing up things for just here and now, and making that our focus isn't just simply wrong. It's stupid. It's foolish. Because they won't last. It's kind of like this. Imagine I came to you today and I said, okay, you can have $1,000 today or a certain guarantee of $10 million every year for eternity that comes next year. And we go, $1,000 today, please. Because we're so enamored by the $1,000 cash. We're like, look at this. It's real. It's now. It's here. We need to see things in God's economy. See, the earth's currency of material possessions and wealth will become worthless when Christ returns. The streets of heaven are paved with gold. I think that's a reminder for us. It's just gravel. <laughs> we love gold. It's exciting. It's, you know, it's such an expensive element, and yet it just becomes the paving stones of what is to come. It's nothing. Earth's currency will become worthless when Christ returns or when we die, whichever comes first. So Jesus says, use what you have now for the kingdom. Look at verse 31. But seek his kingdom and all these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old. And an inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When the Civil War went on in the US, the 11 Confederate states produced $400 million of what's called Confederate money. 
It was fully legal tender, was to be used, and you could use it for trading and buying and selling. and all, It kind of had its full value at that point. But the day that the civil war was over, that money became useless. Completely useless. Even the rarest of all the notes from the Confederate uh, money, the $500 notes, that's the rarest of them all. Today, do you know how much that's worth? $400. It's the rarest one. It wasn't even worth what it originally was at all. But there was a period during that war, when the war was still on, where you could cash in your Confederate money for US money. A moment before the war was over, where you could do an exchange of things that, well, if, if you knew the future wouldn't last, to gain something that would last, that today would be still quite valuable. What Jesus is saying to us here, cash in the useless things we chase after. That death or Jesus' return will render worthless. Rust will destroy. Moth will take over. And invest in His kingdom. We're to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Jesus isn't against treasure. Not at all. (laughs) He's saying, no, chase after treasure that lasts. Why would you waste it on stuff that's just going to burn here? Why would you waste it on something that will last but a blink of an eye when we can invest in His kingdom? We invest in the kingdom, not just because we are told to, because it's the smart thing to do. See, those treasures will last. Jesus is arguing from like a bottom line argument here. You want something that will last forever? Stop wasting it on candy floss. Stop wasting it on, on houses and things that are here and now. What? Spend your money on things that will last. It's not an emotional appeal, it's a logical one. A logical one. Jim Elliott said this great quote. You probably know it, but I'll say it again. He is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. It's not that Jim Elliot was the type of guy who wasn't into gain. We can't just write him off and go, man, that's just selflessness. He's just thinking about that. Uh, this is a guy that was into gain big time. He was into gain that you cannot lose. Financial planners tell us when it comes to your money, we need to not just think three months or three years ahead. We need to think 40 years ahead. We need to think about our lifetime and how we're investing over that and the, the difference interest makes. Christ the ultimate investment counsellor, takes it further to say, don't ask how your investment will be paying off in 40 years' time. Ask, what returns will it bring in 40 billion years? When you are with the Father and the Son, I imagine Jesus would have come back by then. He may not have yet, but when that goes on forever and ever and ever, and you see people who you've invested in, people who now trust Jesus, that are there with you into eternity. You see people who were in darkness, just like we were, and are now in light because they've seen what He has done for us. That is a true investment. How do we make sure we're rich toward God? Number four, by responding radically. Responding radically. Jesus is radical here. We are to see ourselves with this kind of framework, not as people who own anything, but as money managers of God. We are God's stewards. None of it belongs to me. None of it. See, a steward, they they manage the assets for their owner's benefit. That's what they do. A steward carries no sense of entitlement to the assets that they manage. 
It's their job to find out what the owner wants done with their assets and carry out their will, kind of like an investment manager. You know, you don't go to an investment manager and say, look, I want you to help me with my finances. And like, sure, they help them out. Then they go, what do you mean? They're mine now. No, no, you're managing them for me. Right? Um, As God's money managers, God trusts us to set our own salaries. He says, I've given you everything you have is from me. I'm trusting you to set how much you're going to keep for yourself. We're enabled to draw funds from the wealth that he's given us to steward, to to pay our living expenses, to keep things that we need to do for the here and now. But we must remember whose money it is that is in the bank accounts we manage. I wonder if it's an idea to go and change the name on each of your bank accounts. God's money. I wonder how that would change the way, if I wrote on on my credit card, God's money. Or banks, to me, then, yeah. One of our central spiritual decisions in life is determining what a reasonable amount to live on is. Often as Christians, we want to divorce speaking about money. It's an area that we want to stay away from. Why is that? Because greed is deceptive. Because we take verses in Scripture that say, don't let the right hand know what the left hand's doing. And so we say, we should never speak about money. When Jesus speaks about it more than 15% of the time, he speaks about it more than heaven and hell. (laughs) We need to think through our maturity as we grow as, as radical Christians, how we will use God's money for his kingdom. For we'll be held to account for it. So often we, you know, some money comes in and you kind of go, wow, this is such a blessing. God has blessed me in such a great way. And that's exactly right. It is. It may also be a test, you know. How will you use what I have given you? Whatever amount we choose to live on, and it will legitimately vary from person to person, we shouldn't hoard or spend the excess. Remember, it's on loan. It's not ours. And we'll have to come before our God to talk about the way we used our money, our lives, everything that we have. We need to keep our obligations, we need to look after our family, but we need to spend the rest on kingdom living. Living for the kingdom of God. In 2 Corinthians 9, it's on the screen, Paul talks about this exact concept. He says, Now God who provides seed for the sower and bread for food. See that? God owns it. God who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will provide and multiply your supply of seed and will cause the harvest of your righteousness to grow. You'll be enriched in every way so that... Now, how do you think you'll finish that sentence? Some would come along and say, so that you might live in a wealthy way that would point to how wealthy and good and generous God is. Some might say, yes, you've been given this money to enjoy God's blessings on earth and to to sit back and enjoy it. Listen to how Paul finishes it. Next slide says, you'll be enriched in every way so that you may be generous on every occasion. God gives us all we have so we might give it away. There's part of us that says, yes, but I could, I could invest more and then maybe there'd be more coming out and there's something to stay, say for good stewardship. But what if we die tomorrow? I don't think there's ever a situation where God would say, man, you shouldn't have given that away straight away. You should have held on to it until the stocks rose a bit more. God comes right out here and tells us why he gives us money. 
Are you ever wondering, what do I do with the excess that I have, with the things that I don't need to pay myself? It's to invest in the kingdom. Not to indulge in ourselves or in me or my children. It's not to insulate myself from the world's ups and downs and brokenness. It's not to remove me from the need of God to provide. It's so we can give generously. Friends, the only solution to greed, the only solution is generosity. It's giving it away, recognizing what we've been given in Christ. God entrusts us with money, not to build my kingdom on earth, but to build his kingdom in heaven. At the end of the movie Schindler's List, I don't know if you've seen it, classic, there's this kind of great scene where Oscar Schindler, who, who was the guy who bought from the Nazis lives of many Jews, he looks back at the end of his life and he looks at his car and his gold pin and regrets he didn't give more of his money and possessions to save more lives. Schindler had used his opportunities and his life better than most of us have. But in the end, he still longed for a chance to go back and make better choices. Those who don't trust Christ have no second chance to relive their lives. This is the time for choosing Jesus now. But those who do trust Christ, we get no second chances either at the way we live our life. Every day is a day gone. Every dollar is a dollar spent. We have time now to invest in the growth of God's kingdom. We have one brief opportunity, a lifetime on earth, to use our resource to make an eternal difference. So how do we give? How do we think through this? And there's lots to talk about, but I just want to put before you a picture. I want to encourage all of us to be entrepreneurial, kingdom-minded, others-focused money managers. To think about ourselves that we exist here to use all that God's given us for His glory. To take for ourselves what we need, to see ourselves be able to keep serving and keep growing, but we do not live for here and now. Well, imagine we were people that were so captured by our King, so enamored that we'll spend eternity with Him, that we spend all our time, everything that He's loaned us, all that we can to bring us eternal gain and bring people with us. Imagine here, Orkney V, a picture of a community of people so committed to Jesus that over the next 10 years, we sacrificially plant 10 churches across Auckland. Imagine we, we radically give our time and energy and our money to see EV grow, not for the sake of EV's kingdom, for the sake of God's kingdom, so people might know Him and grow in Him, that we might be a gospel-proclaiming fountain in this city. Imagine being a church that continues to train and equip people and has the resources to see more people go out across this country and across this globe with the news that brings life forever. Imagine a central Auckland church so committed to the spread of the kingdom that each person seeks out opportunities for growth and generosity, that we're excited by the chance to give, that we find joy in radically trusting our God and being part of a community that cares for one another as we, as we live life together. Imagine the difference it will make for a village in Sri Lanka to have not only their physical needs met, but the news of the kingdom given to them. 
Imagine every child in need of food, clothing, and the gospel had it. Friends, we have a a great privilege to serve our God with all that we have. What I want to encourage you to do now, let me be a little stronger. I'd love you to challenge you to go away and consider what radical looks like for you. To actually go away and pray about how you might live seeing the world through Jesus' lenses. About what things matter. To prayerfully and with a cheerful heart reflect on what Jesus has given us. And to look forward to the treasure we get to store up in heaven. I'd love you to go away and I'd love you to actually pledge how much you, God willing, could give next year. On our website, um, you can go up to uh, more about us info, I think it is, and there's a give section, or you've got the address in your outline at the bottom of the page. There's a site that you can see a little bit more about our giving, and there's a page you can go to where you can pledge to say, yes, I actually want to prayerfully commit to giving this much next year. That's a way that helps us as a church to budget. It's a way that helps you to consider where your finances are at and go, yeah, look, I'm excited to see kingdom growth happen. If you're not kind of at the point where you're like, oh, I'm not really on board with what Auckland EV is doing, then I do honestly want to say, go find a place that you can be on board with. Go find a place where you're excited to see kingdom growth happen. Come and chat with me first. <laughs> I'd love to hear why. There are things that we can change. But we should be going, yeah, we want to be investing in this kingdom through the only institution our God has set up on earth, the local church. Now, I say this not because we want to pay our staff more money. Not at all. We won't do that. Our wages here are tied to the average weekly earning of a person in full-time employment across New Zealand. That's how we tie our wages to that Bureau of Statistic figure. As a church, we're not in some financial crisis. There's not some moment that we need to respond out of a knee-jerk reaction to, we're going to cut staff or something like that. No, you have been generous. It's been great to see people giving and, and, and choosing to serve Jesus radically. But we're in the position where we have great, great opportunity. Look at this city, 1.5 million people. We want to see just 10% of them in churches. That's 750 churches of 200. 200 churches of 750. We need to be planting churches in this city. The only thing under God that's stopping us in some ways is funds to see church planters be able to start. Funds to be able to see people who are keen for education to be trained up. God owns everything. He doesn't need our money. But He allows us to partner with Him, with the money that He's entrusted to us so we might serve Him. Our budget as a church uh, this year was just under $300,000. Next year, we've just set the budget. It's $345,000. It's a 17% increase. 17% increase for a church that doubled in the number of regular attenders in the last 12 months. I think that's pretty, pretty conservative, don't you? Imagine what we could do as we keep growing, as we keep thinking through what radical could do. Not what this world sees as right, but just out there. How can I live with my all? What has God entrusted me with? Now, I want to say there'll be many among us here that are already being radical with their generosity. You're already doing radical things. People and families that have seen what Jesus has done, they've made bold steps to be radical with their riches toward God. I can guarantee you not one of those families will be feeling like we're trying to squeeze you for more money right now. They'll be saying, bring it on. We're excited about seeing this message go out. Where are there more opportunities to give and how can I do it? Paul praises the Macedonian church who out of their poverty wanted to give 
because they saw they were building a treasure that lasts for eternity. Giving to the kingdom, being rich towards God is like a giant lever that's positioned on the fulcrum of the world. It allows us now, with a small amount of input here, to move mountains in the next world. Because as we give now to the kingdom, as we see our money and time and resources freed up, eternity will be different for others, for us. The best investment you can make is in the kingdom. All kingdom red. <laughs> and if this earth is temporary. When Christ returns, Peter says the world will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. It's part of that that sounds a little depressing. It would be depressing if this world was our home and this was all there was, wouldn't it? It would be depressing if we couldn't use our lives and resources now to affect eternity. But we can. C.S. Lewis put it this way. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer at a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We settle for too little gain. But Peterly returns when there's something so much better than anything the world can offer. Eternal treasures, exhilarating joy, and we get to take part in that now. Let me finish with Jesus' words from verse 32. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your Father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friends, we have a God who has given us immense treasure. Can you join with me? And seriously, as a church, let's consider what radical looks like. And let's trust Him. What do I pray?